Chapter 16 of the Green Millennium. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mira Williams. The Green Millennium by Fritz Leiber. Chapter 16. As the elevator door closed behind Phil and he started the weary climb from 28 to 29, he was already tormenting himself for having turned down Phoebe Filmer's invitation to have a drink in her room. When she had accosted him in the lobby, babbling about how he had rescued her at the Tangette, he had felt the last thing he wanted was to be with a human being. But now, with nothing separating him from the loneliness of his room but an echoing flight of stairs and an empty corridor, he suddenly realized that he needed human companionship above everything. He remembered how boldly he had set forth just yesterday afternoon from his room to look at life and plunge into any adventure that came along. And as it happened, he had seen so shockingly much of life and been buffeted by such vast oceans of adventure that his brain still buzzed from it. At times during those incredible twenty-four hours it had seemed to him that his whole character was changing, that he was becoming the daring yet sympathetic adventurer and lover he had always dreamed of being. Yet here he was, dragging himself miserably back into his room, having just pulled his usual craven trick of saying, no, when he desperately wanted, at least ten seconds later, to say yes. Why, from the speed with which he was falling back into his old habit patterns, he'd probably spend the evening spying on Miss Filmer from his darkened window. Oh, he could tell himself there was no reason to give a second thought to an ordinary pretty woman when he'd just met such a wickedly desirable girl as Mitzi Ramadka, or seen such a beauty as Dora Pans, not to mention sharing the society of such grotesque but attractive characters as Juno Jones and Mary Akeley. But that was just rationalization, and he knew it. Phoebe Filmer was more his size, and he wasn't even big enough for her. Or he could once more tell himself that, if only Lucky were at his side, he would be brave and bold again. But even that was no longer quite true. Fact was that everything had become much too big for him. He wanted the green cat, yes, but he wanted him as his own special pet, his mascot, his good luck cat, something to sleep at the foot of his bed. Not as a mysterious mutant monster that kept getting him involved with male and female wrestlers, Religious crackpots, gun-toting psychoanalysts, girls with claws, hep thugs, world-famous scientists, espers, vice syndicates, FBL raids, national and international crimes, and a whole lot of other things that were much, much too big for Phil Gish. He coded open his door, stepped inside, and had almost closed it behind him when he realized that he was not returning to loneliness. On her hands and knees, apparently to look under his bed, but now with her face turned sharply towards him, was the black-haired, fawn-like girl whose window was opposite his. He froze in every muscle, his hands locked to the barely ajar door, ready to jerk it open and run. She got up slowly, with a smile. Allo, she greeted him in a warm voice, with a foreign accent he couldn't place. I have lost something, and I think maybe he hid in here. She smoothed out the black-pied gray suit he'd watched her take off last night. Then she leisurely ran her hand back across her head and down the ponytail in which her hairdo ended. Something? Phil croaked gallantly, his hand still glued fast behind him. He couldn't help it, but every time he looked into her eyes his gaze had to travel fearfully down her figure to her ten-inch platform shoes. 
Yes, she confirmed. Uh, how you call him? Pussycat. Then, after a bit, Say, you act like you know me. Her smile widened and she shook a finger at him. Have you been peek at me, you naughty boy? Phil gulped and said nothing, yet that remark did a great deal to humanize her for him. Hallucinations don't make one blush. That's all right, she assured him. Windows across, why not? Same thing, windows across and both open a little. Make me think maybe my pussy can jump over here, so I step across to see. Step across? Phil demanded a bit hysterically, his gaze once more shooting to her legs. Sure, she said smilingly, and indicated the window. Take a look. With considerable reluctance, Phil unstuck his hand from the door and gingerly walked to the open window. Spanning the ten feet between it and the one opposite was a flimsy-looking telescope ladder of some gray metal. Phil turned around. Is it a green cat? he asked reluctantly. Her face brightened. So he did jump across. Phil nodded. What's more, he went on rapidly, I think I met your brother today, a journalist named Dion de Silva, representing the newspaper La Prenza. She nodded eagerly at the first proper name. That's right, she said. I'm Daiti de Silva. And I'm Phil Gish. Did you say Daiti? Sure. Short for Aphrodite, goddess of love. You like? Please, where my brother and my pussycat now? I haven't the faintest idea, Phil said sadly. She shrugged as if she expected to hear just that. There's nothing new. We are crazy people, always get lost each other. Then you do come from Argentina? Phil asked doubtfully. Her accent didn't sound Spanish, but his acquaintance with Spanish accents was limited. Sure, she confirmed carelessly, her thoughts apparently elsewhere. Far, far country. Tell me, Miss De Silva, he went on, does your cat have peculiar powers over people? She frowned at him. Peculiar powers? She repeated slowly, as if testing each syllable. Don't understand. I mean, Phil explained patiently, can he make people happy around him? The frown smoothed. Sure. Nice little pussycat. Make people happy. You like animals, Phil? Once again, he couldn't keep his gaze from flickering to her legs, but on the whole, he was feeling remarkably bucked up. Mr. Silva, he said, I've got a lot more questions to ask you, but unfortunately I don't know Spanish, and I don't think you understand English well enough to answer the questions if I put them to you cold. But maybe if I tell you just what's been happening to me, you'll be able to. At least I hope so. Sit down, Mr. Silva. It's a long, long story. It's very good idea, she agreed, sinking down on the bed. But please call Daiti, Phil. She makes one feel at ease. Phil thought as he placed himself in the foam chair opposite. Well, Daiti, it began, and for the next hour he told her in some detail the story of what had happened to him ever since he had awakened to see Lucky sitting on the windowsill. He suppressed entirely, however, the incident of watching her last night, which made it necessary for him to also condense the account of his session with Dr. Ramadka. Daiti finally interrupted him to ask for explanations, some of them exceedingly obvious things, such as what was a hat pin, and what was the Federal Bureau of Loyalty, and what was it that male and female wrestlers tried to do to each other in the ring. On the other hand, she sometimes passed up on things he expected to puzzle her, though he couldn't always tell whether this was because she really understood them, 
or because she didn't want to. Orthos interested her not at all, stunned guns mightily. Lucky's exploits did not seem to startle her much. Her usual comment was along these lines. That pussycat is so stupid, but lucky too. That's good name you give him, Phil. When he came to the Humberford Foundation and Dighty's brother, she rolled over on her stomach and listened with closer attention. But when he hesitantly mentioned how Dion seemed to develop such an interest yen for Dora Penns, she whooped knowingly. That brother, she chortled. He chased anything with two legs and milk glands, except, of course, when he pregnant. What? Say something? Must got wrong word. Dighty interposed quickly, brushing the matter aside. But she was very much interested in Morton Oakley and insisted on Phil telling her a great deal about the famous scientist. He smart man, she said with conviction. Very much like meat. I'll try to manage it sometime, Phil said, and told how the green cat had been captured by Dora Pans. Dighty shook her head solemnly. Some people got very hard hearts, she said. Don't like pussycat all. Phil quickly rounded off his story with an account of how the fake green cat in the alley had scratched him. Dighty got up and came over and touched his hand tenderly. Poor Phil, she said, then summarized. So we know who have pussycat, but not where. That's right, Phil said quickly. And that where is a tough one, because Billick's hiding from the FBL. And he got up rapidly, trying not to make it obvious that he wanted to put a few feet between them. Dighty's fingers were soft and gentle enough, but there was something about her touch and her close presence that set him shivering. Conceivably it was her odor, which wasn't strong or even unpleasant, just completely unfamiliar. She looked after him rather wistfully, but did not try to follow. He faced her across the room. "'Well, that's my story, Dighty.' he said a bit breathlessly. And now I want to ask my questions. Just what kind of a cat have you got that Fun Incorporated could hope to bribe the federal government with it? Is it a mutant with telepathic powers and able to control emotions? Is it a throwback or maybe deliberately bred back to an otherwise extinct animal? Is it some kind of cockeyed triumph of Soviet genetics working along lines our scientists don't accept? Damn it, is it even some sort of Egyptian god like Sashevrel thinks? It's your turn to talk, Dighty. But instead of answering him, she merely smiled and said, "'Excuse me, Phil, but that long story you was really long. Be right back.' He expected her to walk out the window and wondered what he'd do, but she merely went into the bathroom and shut the door. He paced around, unbearably keyed up, lifting small objects and putting them down again. Nervously, he turned on the radio, sight and sound, though he didn't look at it and didn't understand a word of what the inane sports gossipist was loudly yapping about the feats, follies, and frivolities of the muscle stars.' Then on his next circuit of the room, he happened to tread hard as he passed the radio, and something went wrong with it, so that the sound sank to a very low mumble, and he was once more alone in his agitation. So much so that he jumped when he heard a small noise behind him. The hall door had opened. Mitzi Ramadka was standing just outside, looking both adolescent and weary in faded blue sweater and slacks. A lock of her long, dark hair trailed in front of her ear. She fixed on Phil an unhappy, defiant stare. "'Last night I said goodbye forever, and I meant it,' she began abruptly. "'So don't go getting any ideas. "'I've come here to warn you about something.' "'Her voice broke a little. "'Oh, it's all such an awful mess.' "'She bit her lip and recovered herself. "'It isn't just that Carstairs, Llewellyn, and Buck hate me, "'or that you've tried to make me get all mushy and humble. "'When I came home by the service chute earlier this morning, "'I overheard my father talking with two other men.' 
I listened and found out that he's a Soviet agent and that his job now is to get the green cat no matter how much killing it takes, and he thinks you have it. Phil looked at her, and the hours between them were gone, and he was back in the little tangled square at dawn, and Mitzi was about to leave him, and all his snapping nervous tension flowed in a new and steadier channel. Darling, he said softly and carefully, as if a sudden noise might make her vanish. Mitzi, darling, I wasn't trying to humble you. Oh, she said, tucking a lock of hair behind her ear. He moved toward her very slowly. Actually, I was just being conceited, and I was jealous, both of you and your boyfriends. Be very careful what you say, Phil, she whispered fearfully. Be very honest. All right, then, he said. I was trying to humble you. I was doing my best to. I was full of the sort of vanity and condescension that comes from understanding too much. I didn't know that your kind of defiance and glory has a place in the world. Mitzi, I love you. He put his arms around her, and she didn't vanish. The feeling of her body against his wasn't like anything he'd imagined. It was simply slim and quite trusting and terribly tired. Then her chin lifted from his shoulder, and he was shoved back about six feet. Mitzi was glaring at and beyond him. He was relieved that she didn't seem to have a gun or knife or claws or anything like that. He looked around. Daiti da Silva, leaning against the bathroom door, was watching them quizzically. Hello, she greeted them cheerfully, then asked Phil, Girlfriend? Mitzi turned pale. How many do you try to take on at once? she spat at Phil. Don't worry, Daiti advised relaxedly. He very timid at first. Oh, Mitzi exclaimed loudly and stamped on the floor with both feet at once. The radio came on loud again. Long been known that she and her husband weren't on sleeping terms, but ironically her fans had to wait until what, with the outlawing of male-female wrestling, was probably her last professional appearance before getting a glimpse of her new boyfriend. In the middle of the bright screen was Phil, with a dazed look and a silly smile on his face. Juno's arm was clutched around him and she was shouting, Even I gotta have a love life and don't you be insulting it! Oh! Mitzi shouted, crashed the palm of her hand against Phil's left cheek and ran out the door, slamming it behind her. Phil stood there for a few seconds, then he turned off the radio and wiped the tears out of his left eye. Why you no chase? Daiti inquired pleadingly. Don't worry, Phil. She come back. She really love you all the more. She proud you such a virile man, have many girls. Please, Phil groaned, lifting his hand. That was goodbye forever. Forever as never, she come back, Daiti said. And just then, there was a timid knock at the door. Phil opened it, wondering whether he should slap Mitzi right away or wait. Dr. Anton Ramadka pointed significantly at Phil's neck with a stun gun and walked in. The small psychoanalyst looked natalie professional in the old-fashioned business suit, white shirt, and necktie affected by some doctors. There was even a vest buttoned over his little paunch. His left cheek was as smooth as his gleaming bald head. Evidently, he'd covered the scratches with skin film. His expression radiated fatherly goodwill and reasonableness, though he kept the stun gun pointed straight at Phil, and every now and then his gaze flickered to Dighty. Phil, he began, I shall not deny the statements my daughter just made about me, for if you will only consider carefully, it will make us allies and comrades. Who could know as well as you, Phil, how hideously psychotic American civilization has become? You've personally experienced what it can do to the brain, the body, the sense organs— and who could appreciate as well as you, Phil, the sanity of the Workers' Republic, where under the first firm rule of Marxist fact and absolute science, 
all psychosis is impossible, because all irrationalisms, all illusion, including the mad vaporings of a gangrene capitalism and its pseudoscience, are inconceivable. Phil found himself goggling his eyes and vaguely nodding. He shook himself. Ramadka's cheery voice was remarkably hypnotic. "'Of course, I should have realized all this last night, Phil, and appealed to your reason,' said Ramadka, as he kept the stun-gun trained on Phil's neck with geometric precision. "'But I was hurried and emotionally upset. Even our agents are not wholly immune to the American infection when living with it, and I made several mistakes.' Among other things, I did not take my unfortunate daughter into account early enough, though I am certainly glad she came to warn you, since it enabled me to locate you, which in turn will enable you, Phil, and your charming companion to enjoy the bracing sanity of the Soviets. The small psychiatrist smiled, and carefully propped himself on the arm of the foam chair. His voice became genially confident. And now, children, he said, for the first time including Daiti in his nod, I am going to tell you how you can do a great service to the illusion-immune state and win an undying welcome when you reach its realistic shores. Psychotic capitalism, faced by total defeat in the next war, has loosed against the Workers' Republic a final filthy weapon, its own collective madnesses and herd delusion, catalyzed by subtle electronic and chemical bombardments of the collective Soviet nerve tissue. To date, this capitalist poison in the Soviet pan-union has largely taken the form of delusions involving green cats. Don't mistake me, these green cats are undoubtedly real. It is my firm belief that they are ordinary cats with tiny electronic cinders surgeried into their bodies, and with hormone-spraying capacities comparable in their vileness to those of skunks. Although the green cats are possibly not the most important element in the assault on the Soviet psyche— they are the main stage props in that assault. Unfortunately, we have not been able to lay our hands on one of these creatures in order to confirm our deductions or shape proper countermeasures. It is absolutely essential that we do so. But there's only one green cat, Phil objected, genuinely puzzled, and it's supposed to be attacking America. It isn't, of course. I'll say it isn't. My boy, I am giving you the Marxist facts, Ramadka assured him gravely. Those stories you have heard are merely blinds put out by the capitalist government to conceal from its own work slaves and pseudoscientists the economy of its actions. What has happened is that the green cat has escaped from a government laboratory here. You led me to that cat once, Phil. You can do it again. I can't, Phil said mildly. Phil, you can, Ramadka assured him. But you got him once, Phil objected, and all you did was let him go again. For the first time, a shadow of impatience darkened Ramadka's geniality. I told you I made some mistakes last night. I let someone get a hypobeam on me, probably a drug spray too. For a time I wasn't responsible for my actions. It was all I could do to escape the FBL raid, but it won't happen again. His voice grew brisk. So come along with me, Phil, and bring your friend. There is no more time for discussion. But, Phil began. Didi da Silva stepped into the foreground. Me no go, she told Romadga. Why should I go? You sound crazy, head. Losing moon state? "'Rationalism's impossible? Absolute science? All nonsense.' The psychoanalyst lifted his eyebrow at her accent and sentiments. "'I was just about to take up your case, young lady. Why are you here in the first place?' "'Just come from the room across,' Daiti told him, jerking a thumb at the window. Ramadka studied her through narrowed eyes behind which memory seemed to be at work. Suddenly he smiled thinly. "'The description tallies,' he said. 
you're the young woman mr gish watched undressed last night and on to whom he grafted a remarkable delusion phil you never tell me about that daddy said looking at him brightly naturally he wouldn't Ramadka said a bit primly why not daddy demanded i don't care if he like okay Ramadka looked at her contemptuously a common exhibitionist i see nymphomania too daddy placed her hands on her hips look i know say long words good but you're diagnosed wrong there not nymphomania satyrosis i show you and then and there she started to peel off a stocking phil watched in fascinated horror Ramadka stood up angrily of all the he began if you think that some crude appeal to my sexual urges but at that moment daiti pulled off her shoe and foot and held out her dainty black hoof fur-tufted fetlock and slim pastern for his inspection okay lusion moon she said grimly take good look say terraces dr Ramadka's knees shook his face was gray his eyes bulged without warning daiti stood spun around and let go with a very accurate kick the stun-gun shot out of Ramadka's trembling hand and clattered against the wall beyond. Ramadka snatched his hand away as if the hoof were hell and stumbled frantically out of the room. The sound of his rapid, uneven footsteps slowly faded out. Phil knew just how he felt. It was all he could do not to follow him. Daiti began to laugh uproariously. While doing so, she hobbled over to the door, shut it, and then picked up Ramadka's gun. "'This stun-gun?' she asked Phil. Phil wet his lips and clutched at the table for support. He knew he must be quite as pale as Ramadka. Daiti, he finally managed to say, his teeth chattering. You come from a country a lot farther away than Argentina. She smiled apologetically. That's right, Phil. I got a longer story yours tell. Phil nodded shakily. But first, if you please, he faltered and pointed at the shoe, foot and crumpled stocking she'd dropped to the floor. Sure, Phil, I understand. She picked them up and sat down on the edge of the bed to put them on. Phil followed her movements unwillingly, but when it came to the point where she was about to thrust her hoof deep into the well of the false foot and the platform, he flinched and looked away. Meanwhile, she was saying matter-of-factly, "'You not illusion, moon man. But you got idea where Pussycat is?' "'No,' he replied nervously. "'But I know where I might be able to find out.' "'In the city?' "'Yes.' You take me there, Phil? I guess so. Don't you want to find the pussycat too, Phil? Yes, I think I do. Okay, that's fine. You can look now. He forced himself to steal a glance at her, then let out a sigh of relief. Her two legs were once more just like any other girl's. Illusion, he decided, was at times the bread of life. And now, he said, you can answer those questions of mine. But just then there was more rapping at the door. This time, girlfriend, Daddy told him optimistically. But Phil was taking no more chances. He switched on the one-way peephole first and looked straight into the face of Dave Greeley. When Phil whispered, Federal Bureau of Loyalty, to Daddy, she jumped up. During his long narrative, she had asked him several questions about that organization— he had answered them in detail, and she had apparently formed some very definite conclusions. We got beat it, Phil. No time question answer now. And she lightly sprang to the windowsill and walked across the ladder. It wasn't as long a beam as at the Akeleys, but it was ten times as high, and Phil wasn't drunk. 
If he hadn't crossed the beam at the Akeleys and gone down the service chute at the Ramadkas, he never would have dared it. His heart was hammering as he let himself down into Didi's room. He turned around with some vague idea of removing the ladder. He heard a crash in his room. Didi grabbed him. No time now, she said as she urged him out of her room into the corridor. Seconds later, they were entering the elevator on her side of the building. Hey, that's the up button, he warned as she punched it. I know, Phil, she said reassuringly. Emerging on the roof, Phil felt for a moment a big sense of freedom. The sodium mirror had not quite set, and everything around was bright, although the lower part of the sky was dark and many stars showed through it. Then he saw the half-dozen copters swinging in low toward them like June bugs. Didi was hustling him along, but only toward an empty corner of the roof. He resented her pointless display of energy. A mighty voice from the sky commanded them to stop. Didi halted almost at the edge of the roof, felt around in the air, climbed a couple of feet up into it, and felt around again. There was the sound of a copter scraping, bouncing, and grinding behind them. Didi opened in the air a small doorway that was black as ink and climbed inside. She turned around, her face a pale mask in an inky rectangle, urged, "'Come on, Phil,' and stretched a white arm out of the rectangle down toward him. Phil stared at this weird air-framed portrait. Beneath it, he could clearly see the sheer walls of the building opposite and the dizzying ribbon of street fifty floors below. Behind him, men shouted and there was another shattering command from the sky. Phil grabbed Didi's wrist. His other hand, fumbling blindly, found an invisible rung in the air. So did his foot. He scrambled up the air and pitched over the sill of the inky doorway into an inky sack and found a curving floor under him. Rolling over, he saw behind him a rectangle of sky with three stars in it. The rectangle narrowed and vanished, and there was no light at all. Then he started to fall. End of chapter 16